We've been through two of the three sections of chapter 5, if you will. Verses 1 through 15 is Jesus addresses a man at the pool of Bethesda, where he asks, do you want to be well? And then in John 5, 16 to 30, where Jesus, in essence, then gives five things he is equal to as he makes himself equal with the Father. And now we get into our last portion of this. Uh, if some of you have like those chapter headings, those are paragraph headings, you might have in there the fourfold witness. I've always been a little confused by that because I count five. So uh, maybe it's me, but we'll, we'll go together with it. It makes sense, of course, being chapter five. But uh, we're going to go to the Lord right in prayer and develop this. This is one of my, I, I absolutely adore this chapter. And part of it is how practical this section is as we look here at something that every one of us uh, has the beauty of hearing and uh, being challenged by in this. And, and this is not, I mean, there's some areas you kind of look at and you're like, okay, I get the marriage thing. It's going to address the people who are married or wish they were, or in, in some cases, people who wish they weren't. And, uh, and, you know, there are certain areas this addresses men, this addresses women. But this, this just goes to the heart of every one of us. So pray with me, would you please? God, I thank you so much for the privilege of being able to be in your word today and to expect you to speak profoundly, not because of anything I and of myself have to offer, but the fact is I just simply lay myself at your feet and say, use me. God, take my lips and place them upon your heart and speak now. Minister to every need represented in this room, God, and I pray you would get to the very core of every bit of this. Lord, that we would hear you and understand you and know you. And God, in that, please today, redeem every second that we would walk out of her going, what an amazing and wonderful God. So Lord, may your scripture burst open and come alive, captivate us in it, and may we have so much fun in your word now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today, I said, would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible be your authority into which test all things. We'll see that here in a moment. We have, in the privilege of our ministry, for the last 25 plus years, had the opportunity to do a great deal of marriage counseling, couples counseling. And in that counseling, it always, almost always seems that when you ask at least one of the two of them, what seems to be the problem here? They say, we just can't communicate. We have a problem in our communication. And of course, if you try to pick on it and pick at it and go, all right, so what does that mean? How, what does it mean you have a problem with the communicate? They can't even communicate how they can't communicate. That makes it even more fun. So you have to go, okay, we're, this is going to be fun to start from. And I realized that that's because every important relationship, every relationship requires requires communication. And you cannot have a relationship with someone if you don't want to communicate with them. I mean, if, if, if you think you're going to have a great, communica- uh, great relationship with someone and not communicate with them, you're fooling yourself. But here's the problem when it comes to communication. There are variables on both sides. And that is the humanity factor, the human factor of error in this. So regardless of where we're coming to, let's say I want to communicate something, and so I'm going to go and I want to speak to Shamar. And here's the problem, is somewhere in all of this, there's something in my head I want to communicate. But it's not just in my head, it's in my heart too. Something I'm feeling. I want Shamar to recognize what I'm feeling as I communicate. But I also want him to understand what I'm thinking. So I want him to understand the content. And I want him to understand the intent. Why in the world would I say it in the first place? So somehow what's in my heart and what's in my head has to make its way to my mouth with the right words that come out. But that's only half the problem. At that point, I might say, yeah, I felt like I communicated that rather well. 
Then Shamar has his half of it. Shamar has to hear those words. And as he has to hear those words, he has to interpret those words the same way I intended them. He has, to intend, he has to interpret the mood the same way that I intended it and the very feeling and intent that it came from. Now, that's two very unique sides to this. So there's an awful lot of margin for error. Let's add to that. Let's add to that cultural differences. Let's add to that our backgrounds as a whole. There are certain things, for instance, in communication that mean entirely, well, to be honest, they may mean the same thing, for instance, When I was first married to this lovely young lady, who, by the way, still is lovely and young, and I'm still married to her. It just happens to be a few years later. Um, She would respond with this. (gasps) You know, the deep breath in, hands going up, usually in the car. Now, she has communicated properly to me, there is some danger. I'd say she did that rather well. The problem is, her background and my background are very, very different. For me, when I hear, <gasps> a gun is involved. And I'm not joking, a gun is literally involved. Now, my wife, on the other hand, it's a cat on the pavement facing the road, not even walking towards it, but that's just the world she came from. Now, praise God, it doesn't mean a gun to her, but because I'm the one driving at a moment like that, it's a dangerous communication. Does that make sense? She communicated it very well, but our backgrounds really caused a problem. You may have heard the stories, and they tend to be much more of a joke than anything. When you're, you have a, an evangelist or something that goes to a country where they try to, to interpret things literally. Often Africa is one of the places where they do this. And the person from America uses these American colloquialisms in Christianity, and the person from Africa doesn't understand them. So he says, the Lord wants you on fire for him. And the, the poor interpreter is saying, I think this man wants us all to set ourselves on fire. I mean, and, and again, he's getting the words, but he's not getting the intent. Does that make sense? And that becomes the danger. And we all know that because in this culture or in this generation, we have texting. And there's a problem in texting because it gets words out. But you can hear a tone. Like, I can't believe the attitude when they said, how's your day? I know what they're saying. When they say, how's your day? You know what that means. And, you know, we used to have certain people that were like that where you say, oh, hi, you look really nice today. And they're like, what, didn't I look nice yesterday? I'm like, You are so taking this wrong. And the reason I say that is, is that unique to all of this situation, we want God to communicate with us. And when we want God to communicate with us, we get struck with a problem. See, God is different from us on both sides of it. Because God actually knows exactly how he wants to communicate, but he also knows exactly how you can be communicated too. And and it goes even beyond that because Corinthians tells us that when we hear God's word, it's spiritually discerned. Do you know what that means? Literally, God communicates it to us and then interprets that in us. So there is no margin of error except this, our desire to obey. But here's the problem. The problem is somewhere in all of this, we've treated God like he's this psycho. And what I mean by that is, I don't know, God's trying to communicate with me, but I'm really not sure what he's going to say. And if I get it wrong, he's going to really ruin my day. As if somehow God's like this weird, twisted, like as if Sherlock was a dad, you know? And he's like leaving clues, and if you don't get him right, he's going to bop you. Well, what part of Scripture portrays a God like that? And if that's the God we portray, I understand why some people just aren't interested in him. I mean, well, I don't know if he's going to speak to me. On the other side of it, you ever have situations, for instance, where 
You're looking for direction for something and somebody else goes, oh yeah, I under, I was seeking the Lord on something and someone came right up to me and said, oh, you need to go to China. And I just knew that was it. And you're like, doesn't talk to me that way. Or there I was just driving down the street or I was in a bus and I looked over and it said, go to China. And I'm like, and it wasn't there anymore. The moment that I saw it. And then after that, the sign fell over and it came back up and it was, you know, something for 4G. And I'm like, oh my goodness. And you're like, that never happens to me. Or some people are like, oh, the Lord just spoke to my heart. And you're like, I don't know what's wrong. My, my heart's deaf. I ain't hearing anything. You know. And the reason I say that is, is that God is not limited to speaking in one manner. What we have in our text for the remainder of this, from 31 to the end of the chapter, is Jesus giving testimony of himself by five different means. And might I suggest to you, it's the same in regards to the manners in which God speaks to us. Now, I want to remind you, your recipe may be different from mine. But I guarantee you, because God wants a relationship with you, he's going to want to speak. And he will make clear his content and his intent. He will make clear his emotion. And in that, every word he will make clear. So you read his word and you're like, I don't know. I don't feel like I'm getting it all. And God's like, because all of it isn't for you at this moment. If you were learning, you know, if you were, you know, you were, you were in uh, reception, you know, primary school, heading into primary school, it isn't like someone's going to sit down with you and start laying out calculate, uh, cal- calculus and certain kind of trigonomic equations for you because you haven't even learned your numbers yet. But you start with your numbers. And then you learn how to count them. And then you learn how to add and subtract and then multiply and divide. It's all part of the math. And the reason I say that is we look at the scripture and we just assume if I open it up, I should immediately start understanding the calculus of scripture. And I'm still learning the numbers. Some of us don't even realize there's a book called Numbers in scripture just to make it even better. Now, I want to set some guidelines, five simple guidelines, and then we'll go through our text. If you look at the page that you were given, on the right-hand bottom side of it, notice it says that there are some guidelines and ground rules. Do you see that? Now, again, don't just believe me, but let me throw these out to you. First of all, God will never speak in contradiction to his word. God is never going to do something that his word speaks against. How confusing would that be? This is how I know, by the way, when people start talking about how God wanted them drunk, that I know that that can't be right. Because over 13 times in Scripture, the Holy Spirit tells us that he wants us sober and sober-minded. I think that that's pretty clear, and I can't see how God would do both. He doesn't speak in contradiction to his word. So when someone says, and again, this is all about getting direction from the Lord. So imagine, it's like, I believe the Lord's speaking to me and he's telling me that I should grab a gun and gun people down. I guarantee you he's not telling you that. Second, God will often speak in contradiction to your comfort. Now, I'm not talking about him being your comfort, but your worldly comforts. That can be in our traditions. That can be in our will. That can be in the things we're familiar with. But Jesus would say, for instance, you all too often reject the will of God, reject the commandment of God, by the way, I'm sorry, that you may keep your tradition. And often, by the way, I have this tendency to actually lean more towards it may be the Lord when he's challenging you to do something that is actually a little bit frightening or uncomfortable. And it's not just like, I really believe the Lord wants me to be rich. You know, I'm like, well, I really believe you want you to be rich. That I can definitely get behind. That doesn't mean I'm getting behind it in the sense of that you should have it. Third, God will not command you to sin. In James 1.13, it says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. 
God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone himself. The fourth letter D, and this is imperative, is that God confirms his word through more than a single voice or moment. If you're going to make a life decision, do not make it because of a single thing. He tells us, by the way, when this, in this case it was in regards to the capital punishment for murder, but he tells us in the standard, by the mouth of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be established. Finally, letter E, wisdom is something God gladly and freely gives. It tells you, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to us liberally and without reproach as we ask in faith without doubting. Now that is important to recognize. Wisdom is not knowledge. Wisdom is what to do with the knowledge. It's like, I, I got all this information. I have no idea what to do with it. You're looking for wisdom. I don't know my options. You're looking for knowledge. Those are two very different things. But when you're like, I have these situations before me, what do I do? You're looking for wisdom. Now, if you recognize that, we've set our ground rules. We've put up our guidelines. Now let's take a look at what Jesus says in John 5, starting in verse 31. The context I remind you is that the religious leaders are looking at him going, who in the world do you think you are? Jesus says, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true, but there is another who bears witness of me. I know that the witness in which he witnesses of me is true. You've sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Yet I do not receive the testimony from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was the burning and shining lamp, and you were willing for a time to rejoice in his light. Jesus, in essence, is calling to the stand five witnesses. Who in the world do you think you are? Do you really think you're equal with the Father? Well, then prove it. And Jesus had already made five statements on how he's equal in that middle portion. Now he calls to the stand, and the first person he calls to the stand is John the Baptist. He says, you guys have all listened to John the Baptist. Why don't you ask him? Now, that's Jesus' defense in his first of his five. But how does that pertain to us? Well, simple. One of the ways in which God can speak to you is through a messenger. Now, that's often just a human being. Uh, for instance, let me give you a couple examples. In Exodus chapter 18, Moses is working himself to death. He is, in essence, the small claims court the appeals court, and he is the old Bailey. He is down to the end. And of course, he's trying every case, and he's there morning till night. Jethro was father-in-law, although I hear names like Jethro. Don't worry, it's, uh, there's better names. He's also called Hobab. Anyways, um, he, you know, he goes, look it, you're working yourself to death. Why don't you actually get other men that you can trust among the tribes to try the smaller cases, and the ones that are left why don't they come to you? You seek the Lord and you tell me what you think on that. In 1 Kings chapter 13, after Jeroboam has actually made two golden calf idols for the northern tribes of Israel, a man of God, we don't even have his name other than the man of God, a man of God, he went there and rebuked him and he told him clearly what you're doing is absolutely wrong. The king goes, arrest him. And as that happens, I love this, the man of God goes, well, do something with his hand, and his hand just gets all nasty and leprous. And he's like, oh, pray for me. And he prays for him. And, and it's, a, it's a weird thing, and they still want to have him arrested anyways. It's kind of crazy to think how that. But then the same thing will happen to Jesus. The whole point was is that God sends a man to rebuke. 
In Proverbs 11.14, it says, Where there is no counsel, people will fail. The people fail. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. In Acts chapter 6, when the, the widows that were of a Grecian influence were being neglected, they brought it to the disciples. The disciples had been fasting and praying. And they came up and they said, this is what we recommend. Paul will say the same thing in essence in 1 Corinthians 17. He goes, this part, by the way, this is just the commandment of God. But here, this is my advice as well. Never in contradiction. In Acts chapter 11, verse 28, there was a prophet named Agabus who shows up. He's the show-and-tell prophet. He shows up twice. And he says he shows there's going to be a great famine in the days of Claudius. It'll actually take place for five years for what it's worth. Now, the reason I say that is God can often use a human being. Well, a human being doesn't have to be the only messenger, but he often can. I found when God often uses a human being, it's often, though, to correct. I mean, if you're willing to listen to the Holy Spirit, God can actually just speak quietly to your heart. But if you're actually living in disobedience to the Holy Spirit, God will have to use means that you'll be willing to listen to. And if you're in the flesh, God will have to send somebody flesh in front of you for that, for you to be able to hear that. But here is the danger, is that men can have ulterior motives, and they can just plainly be wrong. Second Samuel chapter 7, David wants to build a, the temple, and in verse 3, Nathaniel, who by the way we read as a prophet, and he's introduced in the chapter, and he goes, David, that's a great idea. Go build a temple, little buddy. Loose paraphrase. And then as he's walking out, God's like, um, Nate, let's talk. David's not the man to do that. And you need to go back there and tell him you were wrong. Now, the good news is in a case like that, Nathaniel actually had to go back and he told him. But he did tell him, hey, bad news, good news. Bad news, you can't build a temple. The good news is God's going to actually have someone through your own loins. Your, your child is going to be able to do this. But then in Nehemiah chapter 6, for instance, and then again, I'm going to pull from a lot of these places. Ultimately, I won't always get to Acts because I always see really good examples. And of course, it's a New Testament example. But in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah is rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. And as he's rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem, it is amazing how many different ways there is opposition against building this wall. Please hear me on this, believers. The church has gotten this mindset that we have to look as much like the world as we possibly can because we don't want people making fun of us or thinking of us as weird or odd, and yet the Bible calls us peculiar people. And the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us, literally setting us apart. And if he's setting us apart, then he's making us look different. And yet in all of that, there becomes this place where a wall comes between us and them. A wall says we're on one side and they're on another. Now, I always say never present a wall without a gate. But Jesus is the gate. The gospel is the gate. But if you don't have a wall, then who's in the city and who's not? Well, whoever feels like they're in the city. And that becomes the culture we live in. Nehemiah is building the wall. And the moment he starts building the wall, the people start going mental. And listen to this. In verse 10, it says, Afterwards, he came to the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, the son of Mechadabel, who, by the way, was a secret informer. So he's, you know, like one of those guys you see on one of those, you know, detective shows. Where they kind of, he's always kind of a little bit sleazy and he's kind of around a corner somewhere. And Well, that's this kind of guy. And he said, hey, let us meet together in the house of God within the temple. Let's close the doors of the temple because they're coming to kill you. Indeed, tonight they're going to come and kill you. And I love Nehemiah. Nehemiah is, is like, Nehemiah and Ezra have very different ways of doing things. Ezra, by the way, plucks out his own beard and he cries when he sees the disobedience of the people. Nehemiah, he plucks out your beard and smacks you in the face so you cry. I mean, there's both ways. 
Nehemiah says in verse 11, should such a man as I flee? And who is there such as I who would go into the temple to save his own life? All these people are risking their life to build the wall and I'm going to go hide for my own life? Then I perceived that God had not sent them at all, but that he pronounced this prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sinbalat, two of these enemies of Nehemiah, had hired him. Now, in a case like that, the guy came, he was an informant, and he's like, hey, buddy, hey, we should hide. They're trying to kill you. Come on, let's go. And Nehemiah's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I kind of see Nehemiah a bit like the rock or something. I just learned, by the way, he's 6'5". My goodness. Anyways, I mean, I always thought, you know, guys that big are usually pretty small because they just kind of squish them and then they plump out or something. Anyways, but, uh, you know, can you imagine I'm just going, should a guy like me flee? Are you kidding me? Everyone else is risking their life. You want, I'm going to go save my life? It ain't happening. And then he's like, wait a minute. This isn't from God at all, is it? By the way, one of the times they're like, we should go into the valley of oh no and talk peace. I don't know about you, but the moment I hear valley of oh no, I think it's a good enough warning right there. And by the way, it was a bad idea. So oh no was, was a warning. Now, all of that to say this. A person can't come and they can't tell you the truth, but you got to test it. Now, on the other side of that, God can also use other messengers. He can use divine messengers. We know, for instance, in Joshua's case, this angel called the commander of the Lord comes down and speaks to Joshua about marching around the the valley, or marching around the city of Jericho. And it's like, how crazy is all of that? You definitely don't think that Joshua would have come up with that. But that was God delivering a message on how to do it. It was Gabriel who showed up to Mary and to Joseph. In Luke 1, for instance, we see that. It was an angel in Acts 8 that told Philip that he, though he's in the middle of a revival in Samaria, that he needed to get out because there was one guy reading scripture and not getting it in the Gaza Strip. It was an angel that told Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, who, by the way, was a Gentile centurion, to call for Peter. It was an angel who led Peter out of prison and said, come, follow me, in Acts 12 was an angel, by the way, that actually told Paul in Acts 27 that everyone on this sinking ship, that not a single one of them would die. God can speak through angels. There's no doubt about it. But the challenge is angels can lie too. It tells us, just so you know, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, that Satan transforms himself into an angel of light. That's important to recognize. In other words... Just because you saw an angel didn't mean you saw a good one. That's important to note. It also says, by the way, in Galatians 1.8, if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel than that which we have preached to you, then let him be accursed. In other words, an angel can actually give you a false gospel. And giving you a false gospel, by the way, and you can say, well, an angel told me that doesn't seal the deal. No. In both cases, we need to test it. But God can use angels. We definitely know of people who have gotten false information from angels and even started their own religions from it. But it starts with this. Second, it tells us this then in verse 36. For I have a greater witness than John's. For the works from which the Father has given me to finish, the very works that I do, bear witness of me, the Father has sent me. In the first case, Jesus, as he calls to the stand, these five different people, if you will, or groups, the first is he's like, you should ask John the Baptist. Can you imagine asking John the Baptist? So was Jesus. Oh, yes, he is. Is he the son of God? Sure is. Well, there's your witness. If you say you believe in him, 
Well, then he's telling you the truth. He goes, but there's more than that. Here's a second. And that is the very works that I do. There are miracles going everywhere Jesus goes. Behind him are, are just the wake of, of well people. And of course, everywhere we've seen, the last, in the last chapter, it was the last was a Gentile, a, a kingsman, who, by the way, if you remember, his son was dying up in Capernaum, and he went and found Jesus when he was in Cana of Galilee. Now, no doubt that can be the case with that. Now, how does that relate to us? Well, one of the ways God can speak is through some form of sign or event. But let me ask you, if you took a sign and you removed the words, what is it? It's just a wall. I mean, the moment we have this right here, and it has nothing to say, it's a wall. The moment it has a message on it, it's a sign. That is really important because sometimes we get this concept that what we really want is some kind of miraculous experience without any message attached to it. But God can speak in this way. (laughs) Now, whether that is something extremely extraordinary and unique, or whether that's something that seems relatively mundane, but for the moment it just stands out to you. Like, for instance, you're sitting on a bus and it says, go to China, and you know that was the Lord speaking to you. You know what? A, a, a thousand, maybe a million people have seen that sign, but for you, God says, hey, that one's for you. But the moment the sign's gone, it's just a wall. So, and we see that, for instance, God can use miraculous events, unique events to definitely direct you. Case in point, Exodus chapter 3, a burning bush. What caused Moses to get in a conversation with the bush wasn't that it said, hey, you, come over here. Though that would have been fun too. Moses was walking in the the, uh, desert of Midian and he sees a bush on fire. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but bushes catch fire quite a bit actually in the Midian desert. Uh, Tamarisk trees, by the way, tend to emit an oil that catches fire. The issue is not that it was on fire even it tells us that it wasn't consumed. And that was a little weird to him. Now, it doesn't take entirely long for an oily tree to catch fire and burn down. So I don't know how long Moses is there, but imagine he's like, oh, there's another tree on fire. You know, it's like, wow, it's so hot here. You could even, oh, there's another tree catching fire. You you can see it's a hot day. Now, he looks over and he sees this tree and he's like, well, that one's gone. And imagine if you're a shepherd, you use things as landmarks. Bushes are good landmarks. They tend not to move on you until they catch fire and they're gone. So imagine he's like, okay, we're going to remember that one. Oh, it's on fire. Never mind. And then he looks over and he's like, hmm, it's just not burning down. It just stinks. It's it's staying on fire. That's an oily. Now, how long do you stare at that thing? Well, that's an oily bush. That's a really oily bush. Wow. That's like an oily asbestos bush, you know? And so he's like, well, I better take a closer look. Now, you've been out in the desert for a while. Which one of you doesn't rub your eyes a couple times and go, hmm, maybe it's me. I think I need some water. And you walk over. And definitely when you walk over and it tells you this, hey, take off your shoes. Okay, I'm in a place where bushes are catching fire. Do you really? Any of you ever been on a beach on a hot day? On a mildly hot day, there is this fun dance for the first timers. I mean, we used to live at the beach. And we would watch it. And it wasn't even necessarily hot most of the time there. It would hit about 20, 25 on a really hot day. But even on a 20 day, 
where the sun would be out just even some of the day. And you watch, you know, somebody that's come from someplace, bless them, like Germany, someplace where they aren't necessarily used to the beach where we would have it. Uh, they would kind of go and they're t- going to pop on their speedos and off they would be. And they take that first step and they're going to walk. And all of a sudden, it's like a football field got in between them and the beach and the shore because now it's, it is a run to the beach. And the worst part is once you run to the water, there's this part of you that thinks, oh, now I have to run back. And the reason I say that is you're in a place where things are catching fire and a bush starts talking to you. And it says, now take off your shoes. Now is there a part of you that thinks, (laughs) I am definitely hallucinating now. But not Moses. He goes, because the ground you stand on is holy and I don't want you taking the world with you. Not in here. God used a miraculous moment to direct the entire course of history. In Acts chapter 1, by the way, Peter recognizes there's only 11 of them and they're like, I know we're waiting for the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe the problem is we need a 12th. And then he starts pulling out scriptures. We'll use that in a moment here. And he's like, you know what? How do we pick a 12th? Well, let's first of all come up with some standards. He has to be around since John's baptism all the way through Jesus' ascension. So that limits it down. And somehow in that, they come up with two guys. And unfortunately, both are listed in scripture, which means one guy is going to be known forever in scripture is the guy who didn't make the cut, right? And they draw, they cast lots. By the way, in Proverbs, it actually says that a lot stops contentions and the lots from the Lord. So they do, and they're like, all right, Lord, whichever one it is, they draw the straw. And they do, and they're like, well, welcome to, the, welcome to the team, Matthias. Well, it was an event, nonetheless. In Acts chapter 2, and it is really important to note, at the Feast of Pentecost, for which churches will name themselves Pentecostal churches. I have no problem with a, a Pentecostal church. I always just like to ask, what was the greatest thing that took place on Pentecost? And if you think that the best thing that took place on Pentecost was a bunch of people speaking in different languages... You're missing the whole point of Pentecost. Pentecost was the feast of the first great harvest. And on that day, 3,000 people woke up going to hell and went to sleep on their way to heaven. That is a greater miracle. But God used the tongues to draw them in. And that event changed the course of history. In Acts chapter 16, one of my favorites in this, Paul has just picked up Timothy. He's got a brand new assistant, or sorry, apprentice. And with that, they're in the middle of of Turkey. And it tells us this, by the way, when they had gone to Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. And when they came to Mysia, well, then they tried to go through Bithynia, but the Spirit didn't permit them there either. They ultimately wind up in Troas and get the vision of a Macedonian man. Another great example of how God can use a miraculous event to guide someone. What's interesting, though, is that it says that the Holy Spirit forbidden them when they were in Galatia. When Paul writes to the Galatians, by the way, about this event, he actually says in Galatians 4.13, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at first. Paul wanted to leave Galatia, and he, in essence, wanted to head up into Istanbul today, and the Holy Spirit didn't permit him. And what Paul said is, I got really sick. And because of that, I had to stay with you guys. And because I stayed with you guys, I preached the gospel to you. Now, who would think, hey, I'm good with tongues, way good with that. Even a burning bush, way good with that. Getting sick, really not my favorite kind of way of God steering. But that is a definitive way. Let's face it. If you want to go someplace and God doesn't want you there and you get really sick, that is a really good way for God stopping you. Now, That's not good from the standpoint of you're enjoying yourself. 
But there are ways that God can speak definitively. God can speak definitively financially. Let's face it, you want to go somewhere and the money just isn't there? You're just not going. And God knows how to stop somebody in such a way. Now, all of that to say again, that God can use signs or events to steer an individual. But here's the challenge. Signs can lie too. As a matter of fact, it tells us in 2 Thessalonians 2, 9, that the lawless one that'll come, that's the Antichrist, according to the workings of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders. The Antichrist will have no problem performing miracles. As a matter of fact, it'll actually say it appears as if he can even call fire down from heaven. In other words, he's going to look like Thor. Uh, Revelation chapter 13, verse 13, says that he performs signs as he makes fire come down from heaven in the sight of men. Now, the whole point of it is this. There are some that say if a person performs a sign, they must be from God, not according to Scripture. It doesn't mean they're not, but it isn't definitively so. There's a whole lot more to watch. And I always say God hasn't called us to be judges, but he has called us to be fruit inspectors. No. God can use signs, and God can use messengers. He can speak in the moment. He can speak through a sign or a special event that will steer you. And those are two of the ways that God can speak. Verse 37. And the Father himself who sent me has testified of me. You've neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his form, but you do not have his word abiding in you because whom he sent him you do not believe. Now, Jesus, by the way, in this testimony, in essence, he's stooping to their level because what he really wants is for them to believe in him. And I can challenge you, verses 34, 38, 40, 44, and 47 all make clear five different times Jesus said, the only reason I'm playing this game with you in the first place because I really just want you to believe in me. So I'll call John to the stand. I'll call the very works that I, that I do. You already know about those things just because I really want you to believe. In essence, I'm stooping to your level because what I really want is for you to believe. Now, it tells us this, by the way. The Father himself will testify. And Jesus is already at his baptism. The father is part of this guy and say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So when someone says, do you, how do you make yourself the son of God? You go, well, you might want to talk to my dad. He told everyone when I was being baptized. And there were many of his disciples who were standing there with Jesus as he's making this defense who were there and could testify of that. Now, how does that relate to us? Well, quite simply, God can speak directly. And for some of us, that is the way. We're laying in bed, God keeps us awake or whatever the case. And he goes, hey, this is it. And I can tell you, often this will be the case for me. Songs like we sang, speak to my heart, I am listening, come out of moments like that. Where it's like, God, I really need direction. I just really want you to lead me, please. Now, no doubt, it was Jesus who said in Acts 1.8, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and you'll be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Jesus spoke directly. In chapter, uh, well, in chapter 9, Jesus nails Saul of Tarshish, if you remember, and he says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus made a house call to a guy who was killing Christians. In Acts chapter 13, that same guy becomes pastor of a church over 200 miles north of Jerusalem in an area called Antioch, Syria. And the Holy Spirit speaks and says, now set apart that guy and that guy. Barnabas and Saul, for a special work I have unique for them, bespoke to them. A work, I'm adding special. He speaks directly. It was Jesus who spoke, by the way, when Paul was freaked out in Corinth. Acts chapter 18, we see in verse 9, he speaks to Paul in a vision and he says, Paul, don't be afraid. 
And I've noticed this. If there's one message Jesus would speak to you personally, it almost always seems to be, you really don't need to be afraid. And I recognize there are certain messages I think God just has to deliver personally to those who are. And by the way, if you're the kind that actually finds yourself fearful, you're in great company. I mean, we like to pull up people like Gideon because he kind of is God's scared cat. But I'd like you to look at Joshua. Four different times in one way or another, in chapter 1 and 2 of Joshua, Joshua's told, stop freaking out. Be of good courage. Man up. That tells me something. The challenge, by the way, he says here, if my word's not abiding in you, you're not going to believe in me, and it doesn't matter what the Father's saying, you're not going to be listening. And there is a challenge in this. Because I realize, like God calling Samuel in 1 Samuel 3, almost every time God speaks, it's either to comfort you because you really want to stop and God says, keep going, or because he wants to get you started and you're not willing to go. But we can always say, God spoke to me because we have a strong desire. And we have to test it like we would all things. So God can speak through a messenger. He can speak through a moment. He can speak directly. Verse 39. And now we're 60% of there. You search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. But these are they that testify of me. But you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive honor from men, but I know that you do not have the love of God in you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. But if another comes in his own name, well, him you will receive. Now how can you believe who receive honor from one another? And do not seek the honor that comes from the only God. Jesus' fourth one is clear in that scripture. He's like, you know, if you actually read your Bibles, you'd realize I'm exactly who it says I am. Now, what I find interesting is quite often in scripture, God can speak certainly directly through scripture, but he often uses it as the testing tool for all the others as well. It tells us in regards to the Bereans, when Paul came to preach the gospel to them, and that would be brand new revolutionary information. In Acts 17, it says they were more fair-minded. Do you know what a fair-minded means? It means they had a beautiful mind than those of, the Thess- of Thessalonica. And by the way, Paul, when he writes to the Thessalonians, he says they were those who had a model faith. He goes, the world's trying to imitate your faith, Thessalonica. And yet, more beautiful yet were the Bereans, because it says they received the word with all readiness, but searched the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. They weren't cynics where they wouldn't hear, but they listened carefully and then they said, let's take a look at it compared to scripture. Interesting. When the debate was over whether Gentiles could be saved in Acts 11 and then ultimately what sort of burden to put on them in Acts 15, the disciples, the apostles went to scripture. They said, well, where do we go with this? And they went to scripture and said, you know what? Scripturally, God saves people like this. In 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it tells us to test ourselves. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, it tells us to test all things. And in 1 John 4, 1, it tells us to test the spirits. So if it's spiritual, test it. If it's yourself, test it. Oh, I have this feeling. I think, well, you better test it. As a matter of fact, just to make it clear, 1 Thessalonians 5, 21, test everything. Now, let me play out the word for you. Dokumazete. Dokumazete is the word for test. Now, when we hear test, usually what I'm thinking of is usually a piece of paper of some form, and I have something I have to poke or fill in a gap or whatever the case is, tick the box. 
But that's not only only kind of testing. And we're thankful for that, by the way. Now, when we cross borders, we cross currencies. We still do that here. We've been holdouts on this great British pound, and to be honest, that's been to our benefit. But if we're going to go back a couple thousand years, it isn't like we can go on the Internet. Let's face it. I mean, if we go back 10 years ago when everyone had their own currencies, and somebody came and says, I have lira, do you even know how much a lira was worth? Now, in America, a million lira was worth one American dollar. So the moment I went into Turkey, I was a millionaire, and I could buy a candy bar. That was it. Maybe a shawarma if I had a couple. The point is, is we didn't know what it was worth. Just because they had a lot of zeros, we're like, I'm rich. No, you weren't. So how do we test it? Well, back when, we would actually test it because it actually, everything was in a coin form, and it came with its own weight of precious metal. Well, that made sense. Sometimes, and this was one of the reasons they ultimately had to put images on both sides, is you can take the image on one side, and ultimately the idea of it was, was that whatever the image and the price was on it, there was actually that much worth of it of precious metal in the coin. So I'm going to give you a handful of coins. You look at the face value on it and go, oh, look at I have a pound, I have a pound, I have a pound. That's kind of the idea. But what if I were a terrible, conniving, rotten, filthy person? Because weird as it is, in the marketplace, they exist. We're city people. We know that. Well, you can shave it off. And you can shave it off one of two ways. You can shave it off the bottom or you can shave it off the side. And you can recognize this is why ridges are put or like on our 50 pence piece, how it looks like a stop sign because those kind of things make it harder to shave things off. As a matter of fact, it's even more complex when it comes to the new pound and so forth. But what if I did that? And now I'm trying to give you the same thing, but I've shaved off the sides. And you're like, well, they look a little small, but it's foreign coin, so I don't know. And now you go, well, how do you know whether this is worth it or not anymore? Well, you take a tried weight, and you take one of those old, cool old scales, and you took that tried weight, and you put it on one side, and you put the coins on the other, and you saw whether they balanced out. Does that make sense? That person is called a docamazete, or a money wearer. You don't take it at face value. You see if it really weighs out. You know this if you've ever gone to a currency converter or that kind of thing because they usually don't just count them. They put them on a little scale. Have you noticed that? And then it flips through like that. But that, that obviously what that tells you is there should be a weight to it. And the reason I say that is is that it's the term that is used for testing all things. And the idea of it is, is some things look, we often say it looks really good in the brochure, but that doesn't mean that it really weighs out. So someone talks a pretty talk. They, you know, they have all these things. Oh, I've done all of this stuff and I do all this. And, you know, and there's this and everyone gets slain over here and everyone gets healed over here and all this. Well, it's like you have a right not to take it at face value because the Bible says that you should go and see whether it genuinely weighs out to what you know is a tried and true weight. And that tried and true weight is the word of God. And if it doesn't line up with scripture, it ain't working. It's just that simple. So when a guy tells you that he's the Holy Ghost bartender, and if you question what he's doing, you are blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and he's not to be tested, I'm going, whoa, 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 we're done. Because Scripture told me to test everything, and that includes you, Mr. Belly Up. And I realize at that point, that does not match up. It does not weigh out. And I remind you, just because if someone does miracles does not mean God's behind it. So, we're down to our last one. But hear me on this, because as you do this, start asking yourself, which ones does God often use to speak to me? Does God use people? 
Now, prayerfully, to some degree, that happens because you're sitting there and I'm speaking. And prayerfully, in this time, God's speaking to you. That's, part, that's important to me, of course. But God can actually say, and you know, by the way, he calls us to be those people too. He tells us in 1 John, if we see someone committing a sin leading to, to death, we should actually confront them. But, but if, look, we pray first. You see them just kind of commit it once, we pray. But as it becomes a habit, and we, we see this in Matthew 18, that we have to approach them because they need to be told. We do it in gentleness and respect, with love, but for a desire to see them restored. Does God use such a method with you? Does God use miraculous events where all of a sudden, and I'm not talking about trying to find a red car and that tells you that you should go and stand in red square. I'm saying that God knows how to speak directly to you through some form of great event. Is that what he uses? If so, praise the Lord. Does God speak directly to your heart? I would say praise the Lord. Does God speak to you when, you when you open the word and go, all right, God, frame this in because he should. I would expect that at all times. Again, God will never speak against his word. Now, finally, last one. And by the way, there is this weird term, bibliomancy. Have you ever heard of it? Bibliomancy, by the way, is making the Bible sacred without actually reading it is basically the idea. And so one, sometimes what people can do is they can kind of flip through. You ever do so they flip through and they go, that's my thing for today. But what happens if you think about it is you're trying to turn that into a sign instead of using the scripture. You've kind of hopped to another one of the things versus reading it in context where you're like, all right, Lord, now speak to me. Verse 45, do not think that I shall accuse you to the father. There is one who already accused you, Moses, in whom you trust. For if you believe Moses, well, you'd believe me for he wrote about me. That sounds like another witness. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, God can speak through messengers. God can speak through the very moment using some kind of great event. God can speak directly just to your heart. God can speak through scripture, and I would expect that. But God can also speak through past landmarks. Moments that he has already established and taught in your past that have become, in essence, law to you. Now, the reason I say this, now, I'm not talking about the enemy bringing back failures. A man tries something and it doesn't pan out. Now, I'm not talking about sin. He just gave it an effort and it didn't work out. And God says, no, try that again. And they're like, that can't be of God because the last time it failed. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the guy that every time he walks into a bar, he gets drunk and you should learn from that. The bar is not the place for you. Every time he's with this, or every time she's with this guy, they fall into sexual sin. I would say that that guy is not you. You shouldn't be with that guy. He goes, God has already established those moments. Uh, by the way, it tells us in John chapter 14 that the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance the things Jesus has already taught you. And we see that throughout scripture. And Paul, by the way, when he had just left Athens, where, by the way, people try to emulate what Paul did there, where he quotes all of these poets and he gets floral, but he never really preaches the gospel. He leaves there and says to the Corinthians, the next place he went, in 1 Corinthians 2, 2, he says, you know that when I came to you, I determined, resolved to teach and preach nothing but Jesus Christ and in him crucified. In other words, Paul tried that whole, and I understand Paul was a really bright guy, so he basically leaned on his natural strengths. He went to Athens, and he, you know, he's like, and, you know, and he was quoting Dylan, 
and a little bit of Keats and Shelley to sound a little bit more floral. And like Shakespeare would say, and there's nothing entirely wrong in and of just that. It's just no replacement for Scripture. And no doubt, it's certainly no replacement for the gospel. And so in the end of it all, people were like, oh, that was very brilliant. That was very brilliant. But nobody really got saved. It was a very tepid response. And when Paul left there, he's like, yeah, okay, they didn't try to kill me. That's a plus. But then nobody actually got converted either. That's not a plus. And I think at that moment, Paul had to sit down and go, is this worth this? I mean, and that's a heavy decision. Would it be worth toning down the whole ministry so that everyone kind of, nobody's in any way really radically offended by the truth? Because I'm not going to really give you the truth, just kind of the truth, the truth. And, and somewhere in all of that, you know, people are be like, well, he's cool and he says a couple nice things and that kind of thing. And then, but then nobody really gets transformed either. Or are you going to stand up for the truth? And when you do, there are going to be people that are going to have a real problem with you for it. But then people get really transformed. And that's the decision Paul had to make. And by the way, it's the one we do too. Because let's face it, if you think being bold for Jesus is going to lose friends, I'm going to say, I don't think you have friends like you think you have friends. Because why would a friend ever want to keep you from that? So what did Paul do? He showed up in Corinth and he was just gospel, gospel, gospel. Jesus, 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 Jesus. Oh, was that offensive? Too bad. Jesus. And it wasn't like he was just trying to be giant jerk for Jesus, but he knew at this point, I'm learning from that. And I'm learning from that from this point on. That's a landmark for me. And I'm going to refer to that and go, oh, the next time I'm tempted to try to be really smart and without Jesus' name and without the gospel, refer to this. And God can use those in your life. Those moments where you're like, you know what? That was not what I should be doing. Israel had a real weak spot and a tender opening for, the, for idolatry. And then they went and were taken to the land 900 miles east to Babylon. In essence, it was, it was idol mania. And when they came back, they were delivered, but they never went back. They learned. And that's important. When Ezra has to speak to the people, because the people are starting to intermarry with unbelievers, he says in chapter 9, verse 14, shall we again break the commandments of God and join in marriage with the people like that? Don't you remember what happened last time? And God can use such things. He can use landmarks like that. Now, which ones does God use for you? The question is, well, what if I don't believe God's speaking to me at all? What do I do? If I'm like, God, where do I go when I'm not hearing anything? God, what do I do when I'm not hearing anything? What do I do? Because I'll be honest. For some in this room, it is the greatest act of faith to go and do something. Get off the chair and just get busy. But for some of us, the greatest act of, the, of faith, staying in the chair. I'm one of those people. I'm one of those people that God doesn't have to say go to. God has to say no to instead. I'm like, I'm ready. Where do we go? Where do we go? What do we do? And here's the thing. If I'm going, God, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? And I don't hear anything. I get frustrated, right? I get antsy. I get restless. Something should be happening by now. Come on, something. 
What do I do? And God's not answering. At least that's what I think, right? And I'm like, and then God finally speaks to my heart. That's one of the ones in here directly. And and he says, Tony, what are you hearing from me? And I'm like, nothing. And he says, what did you ask? I said, what do I do? Where do I go? What do I do? Nothing, Tony. Wait on me. And he goes, I know that's difficult. So exercise your faith. Psalm 46, and I'm just, we're at the end of this. In Psalm 46, where he tells us in verse 4, there's a, a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place of the tabernacle of the Most High. God's in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God shall help her just at the break of dawn. And he's, the whole point of it is God's my refuge, my strength, ever-present help in my time of trouble. I'm not going to be afraid. Even if the earth is removed, even if the mountains are carried into the sea, though the water be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling, I'm not going to freak out. The nations raged. The kingdoms were moved. He uttered his voice. Oh, the earth melted. Global warming, it's because God said something. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Oh, think about that. And he says, come, behold the works of the Lord who has made desolates or desolations, the things of the earth, or made desolations in the earth, as it's literal. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two, burns the chariots with fire. And he goes, now if you get that, here's the next verse. Hear this. First of all, he's like, look at Things sound pretty crazy right now. The earth's moving. Mountains are throwing themselves into the sea. Things look like they're melting. The world looks like it's falling apart and you're freaking out. And he goes, hey, look at, look at, look at. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. You know this by this point. And God's our refuge and our strength. We should know that. He's the place we can run and be safe. Our ever-present help in time of trouble. And because of that, because God's the place you can run and it's solid and it's not moving and it's safe and you're protected and you're sheltered, no matter what happens here, it doesn't matter as long as you have a refuge first. And that's the context for this verse. Verse 10. Be still and know that I'm God. It wasn't like he said, hey, be still because I just want you to sit still like a parent going, sit down and shut up. He's like, look it, the world isn't going to be still and it's going to freak out on you. But am I your refuge? Things are going to make things, the earth is going to look helpless, but I'm your ever-present help. Am I? Because if I am your ever-present help and I am your refuge, you can be still. Because you need to know, it isn't just be still. Because if it's just be still, then I just watch all of this happen? He goes, be still, but you better know I'm God. In other words, I know what I'm doing, and you've got to know my heart in this. This is not me going, oops. This is me at work. And if this is what it takes, wait. I will be exalted on the earth. And the psalm ends with this. The Lord of hosts is with us. Think about that. The God of Jacob, he is our refuge. Yeah, things are crazy. So I'm asking you to go and sit in my refuge and rest. Be still. Because if you're planted in my house, you'll flourish in my courts. Psalm 92.13 makes that clear. 
How long do I have to wait, Lord? Abraham waited 75 years. Israel waited 430 for their deliverance. They waited 720 for their Messiah. Isaiah waited 720 for his Messiah. The disciples waited 40 days for the, for the power of the Holy Spirit to fall upon him. And we're still waiting for his return. But hear me. He says, if you're willing to wait, and it doesn't say wait for the Lord. It says wait on him. Waiting for the Lord means you have the plan, and when in the world is he going to finally catch up? I have a plan. I'm waiting for you to catch up with me, Lord. Waiting on him means it's not just when, it's where, what, and how, too. When I'm on a bus, and you get those beautiful words, this bus is now on diversion. I can't tell him, no, 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 no. I need to be at this place. Get out of there. I'll drive. All I can do is wait on the bus. When I'm on the train and it stops for the myriad of reasons a train stops in the middle of a dark tunnel, all I can do is wait on the train. I can't make it go, won't it? And by the way, if it decides it's going to the next stop and stopping there and terminating there, it isn't like I have a vote in the matter. Now, if there's a fire three stations down and it stops at the next one, I could yell and scream and say, I demand you to go the next three stops. But somebody in their wisdom decided they didn't want you becoming extra crispy. That was very nice of them. They know something you don't. I think that that's great. So when God stops, diverts, terminates something, and you wonder how he's going to route, reroute, and you're just angry because all you can see is how this isn't working out the way you want it to, God says, wait on me. If you do, you'll renew your strength. I kind of get from that, if you're not waiting on him, you'll get exhausted can't renew your strength when you're waiting for him, only on him. You'll mount up like wings on eagles. I mean, what in the world? Can you imagine getting above all of it and seeing it all from the sky? Run and not get tired. Walk and not faint. I'm, I'm good with that. Listen, as we go to prayer, beloved, God wants you to know this. He knows how to speak to you. The issue is not that. The issue is, are you listening? And if you're listening and you're hearing nothing, plant yourself and be still and wait on him. And watch what he does. You are not being disobedient by waiting on him. Disobedience happens when you run off and just try to do something to do something. And I'll be honest, that can be my story. But waiting on him, there's something strange because I'm waiting. It's like, all right, Lord, I'm waiting. It's been 14 seconds. I should have amazing peace by now. Like there's a symphony of thoughts playing in your head right now. Exactly. How do you want me to speak over that? As we go to prayer, Jesus, in all of these reasons that he listed all of these, was so that you would believe. Have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? 
I'm not asking, have you said that Jesus exists, like he's Santa Claus, Father Christmas, or the Easter Bunny. I'm asking, have you put your trust in what he did at the cross by paying for all of your guilt and shame, raising again to give you new life? Have you said yes to him? Because if you haven't, I want to give you that choice. But if you have, can you say today, Lord, speak to me. And even if what, and by the way, do you really think that all God has to do is, every time he speaks to you is correction? Well, what kind of relationship do you have with him? Couldn't he just say, I love you. Sit still and rest. Don't worry, I've got this handled. Be still, but not just be still. Be still and know. I'm God. You're not. I am. You don't have to figure it out. You don't have to muster the strength. Rest. Pray with me, would you please? Lord, I want to thank you for this beautiful text. I want to thank you for the privilege of being able to be in your word like this and know that you're going to speak. I know, Lord, your words are your words and your word is your words. You speak and I get it and I love the fact that you love to, to you stoop to our level just to make clear that, that, that we have every reason to believe you. And I pray, Lord, for those who often hear most in direction by having someone else, a messenger, come and speak. Give them discernment to not be led astray. But let their ears be open, as you tell us at least eight different times in the book of Revelation. He has ears to hear. Give us an ear to hear, Lord. For those, Lord, who it takes something a little bit more magnanimous and mag- in, in and extravagant where it is something that just seems like the heavens part the bushes catch fire and don't don't dissolve in that fire Lord I just pray that we would not be led astray by false signs but our eyes would be open to see what you want to show us For those, Lord, who you speak to directly and they hear that. I mean, I know, David, you always sent a prophet, but Solomon, twice, you showed up right there to speak with him. Let us not confuse our emotions, our desires, and our will for your word and your voice. Now, I'm sure that every time you speak will not be exactly contrary to everything we want. But if we delight in you, if we trust in you and not lean upon our own understanding, but trust in you with all of our heart, acknowledge you in all of our ways, I trust you'll make our path straight. And do speak, Lord, to our hearts. We've asked that. Lord, for those who are open to hearing your scripture more and more. Lord, give us a greater hunger, but for every one of us, give us that hunger to know your word, to be able to test all things, ourselves, our emotions, every other human being, prophecies that we're not to despise, but to test. Anything spiritual. Let us be more faithful to your word. And for those, Lord... You tend to use these landmarks in their past to guide them to, as buoy bells to keep them from thrusting the boat of their life upon the rocks. 
Lord, let us never be so caught up in something that we can't hear the bell. But Jesus, we recognize that as you speak to us, first and foremost, you will speak that you love us. Paid the price for our sins and rose again. So, you invite us to a relationship with you to which their communication is always open. And here in the sound of this voice, if if you've not accepted the gift of Jesus, I ask you to pray this prayer with me right now. It's a choice you make. God in heaven, I am a sinner. And I stand before you in my own merit, guilty. But you so love me. You took all of my guilt off of me. Placed it upon the shoulders of Jesus, your son. And when he died on the cross, all of my guilt was paid for. And just like scripture promised on the third day, he rose again and offers me a new life with nothing between us. My guilt is gone. My shame has been vanquished. And I say yes, declaring Jesus is my savior, my ransom, and my risen Lord. So have me. I give myself to you now. I belong to you. In Jesus' name. If you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say amen. God, you've heard our prayers today. Now cement in our hearts, Lord, that conviction. And today, just make us available to hear you, Lord, to know of your pleasure and to hear not just your words, but the intent, the heart, the emotion behind it that we would delight in you even as you do in us. Jesus, in your name. Amen.